I invite you to turn in your copies of God's Holy and Inspired Word to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to look at verse 8, and we are barely going to touch it. I was talking with some folks the other day. They were asking me about, you know, are you ready for Sunday? I was like, no. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And they were like, well, you haven't started working on the sermon yet. It wasn't Rusty saying this, by the way. I was like, no, I don't know what not to say yet. I don't know what not to say yet. The title says it all for us. What we're looking at today in these amazing and, and, and incomprehensible words of Jesus Christ is purity and the beatific vision. If you've noticed from the liturgy up to this point, there was a, that we are called in, in the call to worship. We're called to behold our God in the heavenly places, right? John the, the Apostle is invited in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Come up here. Come up here so you can see. And, and then John attempts to describe for us what he sees, and we're called to see God. But we're also reminded that because of being unclean, and because God is so pure, that to see him in this current state would kill us. And yet he's doing what is necessary so that seeing God, which would kill us, can become a seeing of God that will delight us beyond description for eternity. Matthew 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see. They will see God. Heavenly Father, help us even now cleansed in Jesus Christ and not yet living in the fullness of what we will be. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts that hunger and thirst. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has summed this up pretty well. We come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. Anyone who realized even something, or anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of the words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, can approach them only with a sense of awe and of complete inadequacy.
Beloved, what we have here in this short statement is nothing less than the entire purpose and goal, center and means of everything that is on God's heart that has led him to do what he is doing. If you have ever wanted to, to know, is there, is there one place where, where in trying to sum up, you know, God and, and, and his people and creation and redemption, right? Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. If we're going to take all these Asians and, and try to find this, this place, this, this, is, there, is there something that is short and sweet that I can sum up all that, that seems to be on God's heart with what He's doing, why He's doing it, whether it is creation, redemption, glorification. It, are, it is these words, it is this phrase right here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We don't tend to use words like see very often in Reformed circles. We tend to emphasize words like know, right? And I don't mean yes and no, <laughs> even though we're good at those no's too. But we, we, we like words like know, like knowledge, like grasp and understand intellectually confess the right truth, right? And all of that is extremely vital and important. But all of that is serving something else. And what it is serving is the restoration of and the further glorification of seeing God. Seeing God is what led God to create. Why did he create Adam and Eve and place them into that garden temple where he dwelled with them and where they served as priests in his temple? Why did he have them there? Why did he surround them with beauty? Why did he reveal to them his truth? Why did they get to experience literally eating his goodness? Because he wanted to dwell with man. Humanity. He created in his image. He created Adam and Eve, our catechism reminds us, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. They were created in a status of purity that allowed them to dwell safely with a holy God. He was not a threat to them. His presence was not a threat in the garden. Because they were pure. But even the purity with which they were created was a purity that was first to be practiced 
in order to enter into an even fuller interaction with God. Adam failed. And all the sons and daughters of Adam since him have been born into this world unclean and impure. And as a result of this, we have been born as those who live outside of the garden, east of Eden, in the wilderness. But God did did not purpose to send us out in the wilderness to leave us there. But he sent us with promises and provisions. And then he took on flesh and entered into the wilderness with his people. And then entered into the depths of what wilderness in the Bible represents, which is death. When our sins, when our uncleanness, when our impurities were placed upon him on the cross and he died for those because that's what our impurity has won, is death. And in being risen from the dead, he has ascended to the right hand of God, where we are told in the book of Hebrews so clearly, he is now a high priest who ministers before his father and mediates a better sacrifice, a better blood than what bulls and goats were and what they could ever have accomplished. And the result is from one sacrifice, a single sacrifice from a substitute who was perfectly and completely and utterly and singularly pure and devoted to his heavenly father. And in the great exchange that happens in a substitutionary sacrifice, where, our, where we became his sin on the cross, he has become our righteousness. Before Adam fell into sin, purity was the condition upon which you would experience to the greater fullness God's intentions of us seeing him. And when Adam fell into sin, and when he became unclean, and when we all became unclean uh, in him, the condition never changed. What had to change was who would fulfill the condition. And God has sent us the second Adam. He has sent us the Christ. In Sunday school with the kids, one of the things we were talking, that we've been talking about the last few weeks, and, and as we went from Genesis 3 into Leviticus 1 this morning, yes, Leviticus with the kids. It's very exciting stuff, right? Because there's blood and bodies and stuff. When Adam sent, or when, when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, he sent them 
wearing clothes. Where through the shedding of the blood of some animals, Adam and Eve's blood was not shed. But he shed blood and gave the skins of those animals to cover Adam and Eve and send them out with a covering. It was an imperfect covering. It was a temporary temporary covering, but nonetheless, it was a covering. And then God, as he takes up residence with his people at the base of Mount Sinai, and, and there in Exodus 40, the very last paragraph of that book, where the glory cloud that has been enveloping the mountain takes up residence in the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle. A tabernacle that was made from what? Animal skins were more blood was shed so that God's glory would have a covering. Man having a covering to shield him from God's holiness. God living under a covering to shield us from his holiness. And then as Jesus, who was God, tabernacled with his people in John 1, he comes in the form of the glory of the God of the heavenly places in which that glory is shielded under skin. Where in blood and in flesh, God added to himself so that he became the living, breathing tabernacle. Living with his people where he would become that substitutionary sacrifice that would allow God's people to no longer have to live in fear before God, let alone fear before His holiness, but now would be in the position of being remade, recalibrated, so that we would become capable of living in the full, unmediated presence and glory of God and dwell before His face forever this is why there is no tabernacle in revelation 21 and 22 this is why there is no temple in 21 in revelation 21 and 22 because the temple is the dwelling of god in the fullness of his unmediated glory as he dwells with a people who are now capable of reflecting that glory without perishing, but instead praising. This is everything about what God is doing from beginning to end, because this is the central matter on his heart for why he has created, why he is redeeming, and why he will glorify. And the condition has always been the same. There needs to be a purity. Because without it, God's presence is a threat. If we are going to see God, it is because we have come to, to, to possess the condition necessary to see him without perishing. And who is Jesus? 
but the God who has come in flesh and who can be seen. Where Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We have said up to this point that Jesus is the one superior to Moses who leads his people up the uh, the mountain to to preside as one, the, the, the mouth through whom God is speaking and providing the heavenly wisdom that is needed. But he is also superior than Moses because he's not just a better prophet through whom God speaks. He is the God who is speaking. And he lifts his people up onto this mountain, calling them up, right? Come up here so that you can see. And what I'm going to show you is everything that you need in order to pursue the purposes that God has for you as his creation, and as his redeemed people. And that is for you to see God. And so what are the conditions that are, that are necessary? What are the values that are, that are necessary? What are the habits and practices that are necessary for the people of God to begin to experience the beatific vision even now while we wait for the fullness to come? Well, he says the condition is a pure heart. Throughout the scripture, the heart is always discussed as being the chief and foremost thing that that God is, is about. He's not simply about the outward physical, even though he is about that. But he also is about the heart. Even Jesus, at the time in which he is giving these instructions, and later what we will see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a very strong contrast between the Pharisees, who only seem to be interested in the outward, who are able to put on a good show, but their hearts are where? Far from him. That was almost your chance to not be Presbyterian and answer something out loud. They put on a great outward show, but their hearts are far from me. What is it that God has promised in the new covenant because of our hearts? I will give you new hearts because your old heart is broken. The heart you have inherited from Adam, it is hard. It is broken. It is divided. And so that even the best saint that that we can see in the Old Testament is one who had a divided heart. Now, I don't know who that is. I'm not trying to create a, I don't want to have a poll later. But did Moses enter the promised land? No. Did David get to build the temple? No. The wisest of men, we know who that is, right? Solomon. 
And what did his son do? His son was a heavy-handed leader who, rather than serve the people, said that they were going to serve him even more than they had served his father, and he crushed the people and he split the kingdom. The history of the people of God is a history of broken, hardened, divided hearts. And so God has made a promise to us in the new covenant, which he has begun fulfilling in Jesus Christ in giving us a new heart. Hearts that have been sprinkled clean because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. New hearts in which the law of God is written onto the heart. Where God has promised, I will write my law on your heart and I will make you. I will cause you to live according to what I write there. Our hearts are broken and hard and divided, and yet God has given us new hearts. And as we learn to grow, as we learn to develop and mature as followers of God in Jesus Christ, the calling to us is is to participate in living with God according to the new hearts he has given us and to stop doing so according to the old heart we have inherited from Adam. The heart is about the governing center of a person. It's about the inner self, the inner mind, the inner will, the inner desires. The heart is not merely about feelings, although, Presbyterians, it includes feelings. When used simply, the heart reflects the unity of our inner being, and when used comprehensively, the heart describes the complexity of our inner being. We have been made body and soul. We have been made material and immaterial. And all of it together is what has been made, as we are told, in the image of God whose hope is to dwell as as material and immaterial beings who have been brought back to wholeness in Christ. That is what shalom is about, is about being whole again. And so this means that God is pursuing our minds. God is pursuing our loves. God is pursuing our wills. And the new hearts that he has given us, he counts us as having minds that think pure thoughts. He counts us as those who have hearts that want pure things. And he he counts us as those who have wills that choose pure things and who perfectly deny unclean things. That's what we're counted to be in Jesus Christ because Jesus was the one who was pure. But this is about the whole life. Not just outwardly. This is not only talking about moral purity, even though it includes that. This is not only talking about how to properly relate in physical ways within this world. This is talking about everything, the whole of you, 
both in what you outwardly do and don't do, but also what you want and don't want, what you think and what you don't think, what you pursue and what you don't pursue. This is what is needed, a heart that is new, a heart that is not divided against God. What you need, Jesus tells us, is a pure heart. The heart that he's talking about here is, is in, in terms of describing it as pure, is also could be described as clean. The word here is where we get the word catharize from. Right? When, and, and, and the idea here is that it is to be a single heart that is without folds, right? It's unmixed. What, what does a folded thing do? Well, when you take something and let's say you, you attempt to saturate it with a liquid and it's folded, right? The liquid doesn't always touch everything. The folds can keep, can keep that liquid from touching all of it. When you fold something up, there, there are parts of it that are exposed and there are parts of it that are hidden. What we are told here is we are to have single, unfolded, unmixed hearts that are completely open to God. And one of the things that this means then is, is this is about not just saying no to bad and saying yes to good, but learning to mature so that we learn when to say no to good in order to have better. And when we learn to say no to better in order that we might have best. Think about Martha and Mary. Both of them who loved Jesus. Martha, who is serving Jesus. Mary, who is worshiping Jesus. Both of whom are said to be doing the right thing, and yet what Mary was choosing was better. This is not to diminish what Martha's doing, but it is an amazing way of us understanding that even in the service of what we are rendering unto God is leading to something else, which is seeing God, beholding God, living in the unmediated perfections of the glory of God and drinking them in until we are so full that we are about to burst and then he just keeps shoving himself down our throats. That's a good thing. We are to have single, unfolded, unmixed hearts. We are to have hearts that set themselves on what is ultimate and what is eternal. Not to discount things that are not, but to keep them in their proper perspective. We want to serve God. But we're serving Him as it leads us to seeing Him. And, and when we see Him, it leads us to serve Him. 
We want to set our hearts on things that are ultimate and eternal. And we are to be keepers of our hearts. We have to guard our hearts. We have to protect our hearts. But ultimately, what this is referring to is not merely moral. It's not even merely virtuous. It is liturgical. Because what will we be doing even in our heavenly service? Right? As those who have keys to Zion, as those who will walk its streets, as those who reside there because it is our true home, what will we do in the service of God? Well, it won't be feeding the hungry because there will be no hungry. It will not be binding up the brokenhearted because there will be no broken hearts. It will not be coming along giving a hug to someone who is crying because there will no longer be any tears. It will not be coming alongside someone to try to warn them that you're flirting with something that is dangerous because nothing unclean will enter in. You see, the service that we will render unto God when we enter into the glory that Jesus has secured for us, that we are waiting to come in its fullness, what we will be doing is serving God as his priests, participating in the eternal worship of God as we take our place with the angels and departed saints and as we sing and as we echo back and forth the glories of God and as we relish those glories, as we enjoy those glories and and as those glories fill us so that those who hunger and thirst are no longer hungry and thirsty. All of this is taking us to an eternity of seeing God. And it is the purity of what Christ gives us as a gift that has secured that for us in eternity. And we're going to talk about more of that, Lord willing, in in time to come. But for right now, even though you and I don't live in the perfections of his purity, and even though we don't live in the perfections of his glory, you and I have been made priests in his kingdom. Where you and I, here on the Lord's Day and and at home, you know, uh, during the week, when you go into the heavenly places as those who are are entering into that that devotion of God, of living Coram Deo, in in your devotions, and and as you take that throughout your day, you, you are a people who serve God in the heavenlies, and then you take that out into the world. You take the bouquet of the heavenly places and you take that into this world that is dying and is filled with the stench of death. In Christ, right? As we, as the kids talked about in Sunday school this morning, in Christ we have become a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Right? Now for many of us we stick to the text. We understand that pleasing aroma is about barbecued flesh, and all of us will eat barbecue to the glory of God as an anticipation, as an anticipation of the heavenly worship. But for some of the kids, it was the smell of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven. 
Uh, now all of you just smiled. All right? The smell of the chocolate chip cookies, or as Christy loves to do to me, has these candles that are always supposed to smell like food. And so you come in, you're like, oh, 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 there's some cookies. No, it's a candle. God doesn't do that to you. Take note, Christy. Anyway. What Jesus has done for us is we have become that, that bouquet of Christ. And when we enter into the heavenly places, the bouquet of the heavenly places gets all on us. And what we are called to do is to take that out into the world. But too often we think the purity that we take out into the world is a purity of wagging our fingers to make sure everyone knows how impure they are without actually helping them to smell the bouquet of what true beauty is. And I'm not saying there's not a place to tell people you're impure. It would be unloving not to. But if we can't help them smell the the bouquet of the heavenlies as we are attempting to do that, then maybe we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, am I fragranced with the bouquet of heaven enough that I'm taking it to people? We are to be pure in heart, not just in what we're counted to be. But even as Adam in the garden prior to sin was called to practice that purity, you and I are called to embody what we are counted to to have. We're called to embody that and to seek to do that as we spread the bouquet of the heavenly places so that those who are cut off from God, who do not have the promise of seeing God and who will, when they see him, see him long enough to be condemned by him. Beloved, we want to show them the God who says, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, beloved, as we continue to contemplate this, remember, this is your purpose for existence, for you to see God. But as those who see him, maybe even through a glass darkly right now, you have seen him truly. And so go out into the world and show people what you have seen. And when you show it and they see it and they ask you, then speak it. Take the beauty and the purity of Christ. Take it into yourself and then take it in to your world. Let's pray. Father, help us to, to embrace the purity that you have already granted to us in Christ so that we would nurture and cultivate that purity that we would enjoy the benefits of that purity as, as we have lives that are set on devotion and worship to you, but also that we would embody that purity as we serve you and serve our neighbor. And all of this, Lord, what we pray is that you would help us to keep our eyes on the prize 
the prize being seeing you face to face and having you wipe away the tears from our cheeks and to embrace us with the eternal hug of love in Jesus Christ. And as we cultivate that within ourselves, Lord, help us to take that, to be agents of that, and to implore others to embrace it. Help us not to contradict it. Help us not to take it for granted, but help us to sink our teeth into all that you have done for us in Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.